Welcome to the Globe Trotten ADs. This podcast is for you, athletic directors, activity coordinators, coaches, and program associates based in international schools around the world. The Globe Trotten ADs is proudly hosted by Nick DeForest from the American International School Vienna and Matt Fleming from the American International School of Budapest. Here they are now, Nick and Matt and the Globe Trotten ADs. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Globe Trotten ADs. It is a live recorded episode taken from a panel discussion at the CISA conference in Vilnius, Lithuania. Don't worry, everybody knew they were being recorded for an episode, and I hope many of you that were in the room are listening to this right now. It was a great discussion, so many different topics, jumps around a little bit, but all really great. And at the front of the room were three panelists, Mark Hall from 3D Coaching, who was our keynote speaker at the conference, my partner in crime, Matt Fleming, and then a coach from the American School of Paris, Gustavo Diaz, who you may know from being on Global Take with me many times. So aside from the panel and myself, there were about 30 other ADs and coaches in the room. And this was my second attempt at a live session recording at a conference. And the first one with a separate mic for myself, the audience, and then one for the panel. But I think I have it all leveled out and mixed and matched and it, it should flow really well. The great thing about a conference and being back in person with so many people were these discussions in sessions, in between sessions, and then of course at night. So if you haven't been to a conference in a while, get to one soon. Um, really mix with people that have all sorts of different backgrounds and experience levels, not just the same people all the time, your, your same friends. So uh, yeah, spread out, uh, mingle, talk, and, uh, and learn from each other. So we're going to do that in just a second. We will hear from Cookery Sports and then go live to the room on a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. I hope you enjoy it. Cookery are a global multi-sport clothing brand specializing in providing the world's most prestigious schools with bespoke made and designed team uniforms for students of all standards and abilities. If you are frustrated by inconsistent colors, branding, costs, and sizing across your school's uniforms, then it's time to discuss an offering where every sport is available from softball to soccer for male and female athletes at rates to suit your budget. To find out how Cookery could elevate the apparel of your student athletes to a professional level, email the team at contact at cookerysports.com. A dedicated sales manager will offer you a quote today. Mention this ad and receive a special offer on your coach or PE staff order. Great. Thanks. Um, thanks for coming to this, this panel. Um, really, I see it like a you know, big group discussion with a few experts at the top. Um, that are in different areas, but all really related to all of our all of our things that we do with all our students. Um, of course, you know Mark, who is our keynote speaker here. So thanks for being here, Mark. It's a joy to be here. This is the first one I would love to be many times because I really believe I'm uh, in the audience of, of the most important people in a school district because we believe that coaches are the most impactful in who's coaching the coaches, who's organized, who's leading. 
I believe the athletic administrator is the single most important person in the school. I wish our bosses thought the same. We'll jump over, obviously, Matt uh, Fleming, the yeah. other Globetrotten AD host with me. So no introduction for you. Happy to be here, too. <laughs> and uh, maybe someone who most of you don't know, which is why I picked someone fresh face to CISA, not in CISA, but uh, Gustavo Diaz, who's at the American School of, of Paris and moving to Madrid next year. Could you kind of introduce your style, your background a little bit? Hi, uh, my name is Gustavo. I am um, originally a physical education teacher from Brazil. I grew up in Rio, where I worked at the American School of Rio de Janeiro for 12 years. There I did a little bit of everything, starting teaching phys ed, coaching, and also athletic coordinator of a new campus in the last four years that I was there. From there I made a jump here to Paris, where I teach phys ed and coach at the American School of Paris for the past five years. And like Nick said, I'm making the jump next year to become an athletic director at the American School of Madrid in Spain. So looking forward to contribute, exchange ideas, and, and learn and pick up the brain of the room. Yeah, yeah great. That's great. Well, I have a few questions prepared if you are shy on a Saturday morning, uh, but maybe someone has a burning uh, or a question to get us started. They want to ask something on your mind that came up over dinner, over drinks last night. Yeah, please. I have a question. How do you go about introducing new sports? Like, there's lots of growing sports around the world. I play ultimate frisbee. How do you get new sports involved with other schools and making these connections and growing that sport to get competition growing like basketball or soccer or any of the other sports. Yeah. So want to start? Sure. Yeah, uh, for me, um, I haven't had to do it too much because we have a lot of established programs already. Uh, but what we, we've done in the past, we've started a couple of new things like badminton, for example, which is uh, we don't have in our competition schedule. It's not a CESA sport. It's not a SKIS sport. So we started doing that more in-house. We offer that for high school kids. And it's actually a student-led club. We have kids who are interested in organizing it. They work with me to, I supervise it uh, and then facilitate it. Um, and that's kind of grown. And so now we've done that in Budapest. We've actually had a tournament so far uh, with the French school and the British school. So a little, and I think the Christian school as well. It's a little four-team, uh, four-school event. And we had 20, 22 kids participate in it. So that was great. Um, whether that'll evolve into a full-fledged SKIS, DVAC, or CSIS thing, I don't, I'm not sure yet, but uh, it, so far it's got a little momentum. Um, but that's, that's as close as I've come as far as establishing new programs. So it, it, the interest was there from the kids, mm -hmm. and then it's just a matter of just plugging into our calendar and finding a facility space for it. Gustavo, have you had to add anything, or have they asked you to add something next year? We had an experience in Paris recently with the girls' soccer team demonstrating interest in having a rugby team, having a female rugby team. And with the change to rugby sevens in the ISST, it was easier because you need fewer players. I would say it's a key to listen to the kids and survey the kids and make sure that you're listening to their interests to see if you're going to have traction in, in that program. In our case, it was a big success, the girls' rugby. We were in for the first time this year. They could find some local competition in Paris, and, and it's starting to get some traction. And the kids absolutely love it. And it came from two or three soccer players who would say, okay, what do we do in the winter? Asking the coaches, why don't we have a girls' rugby team? Let's get that started. And, and the athletic director jumped in, and, and we made it happen. Any tips when someone's adding a program that you think should, should be remembered 
Mark? The, the only tip would be in saying, okay, who's going to coach that team? And uh, you, you just can't hire your way to great coaching. You have to train your way to great coaching. And so how do we onboard that person? What kind of culture do we have? Because we want to make sure that that aligns with that. Otherwise, you, 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 it's a crapshoot with that. So say, okay, how do we onboard somebody? The, the coach, maybe it's somebody, the coach has risen up from within and you're, they're part of your educational system. But if they're not and you're hiring from outside, you gotta train them and if they're entering that culture. So we've gotta think about what is our process for onboarding, because that will determine your culture. Great. Anthony, yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, just off the back of that, I'm interested here from Mark and the whole panel around. Um, how you create, how you help and support those coaches um, once they're inside your system, and particularly interested to hear about tools or techniques that you use with coaches, particularly if you have to have maybe constructive feedback conversations with them, um, and how you go about setting that <coughs> culture and, and reviewing and evaluating your coaches. Yeah, I would just say, okay, and coaches need to be treated as part of the staff, the faculty, and we need to have professional development. I think we need to look at that, and that's what we've been talking to. Even in the U.S., the, the start thinking about your coaches as really significant staff people because <coughs> we believe in a school system, coaches are the greatest assets that you have in the system and likely least trained in the areas they can make the greatest difference. And what if we could train them there and treat that as professional development. This is not money that comes out of the athletic budget. This is part of the school's professional development. And these are professionals and we need to continue developing them and treating them like that. And then having an evaluation tool that will, I mean, you, know, you guys have with Cookery and there's others we have with our system that aligns so that the evaluation isn't something that people hate to do, they don't like what they have, mm -hmm. but something that actually enhances and supports that person, makes them feel like they're valuable, not they're being judged, but they're being helped. Yeah, and for me, it's it's uh, my job, even though I'm their leader and their boss, so to speak, um, I'm there to service them, to support and help them as much as I can, answer questions, especially they're brand new to the school, because they need to figure out their way around the school and, and how things go, <laughs> the systems and the culture. So that's my job, to make sure all those questions are getting answered and give them their support, even as simple as giving them a keychain or a, a shirt or, you know, a coach's shirt. That, that goes a long way. Um, and just be there as much as I can, you know, and observing and giving feedback, po uh, positive feedback, or if there's some construction that they need to help the, the, the lesson go better, um, I want to be there for that. For that. And then that'll, that'll go that much further because they know they can come to me if they need some more support or something else down the road. Gustavo, me from a coach perspective, someone as a 80 year school done something that you really appreciated or? I appreciate, uh, I mean, as a coach, many times people feel threatened when they're being evaluated, for example, in their job. But honestly, as a, as a professional, if you're not evaluated or if nothing is done towards not measuring, but necessarily seeing your work on the not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, but after a season, if, if your athletic director doesn't come in and there's no reflection, there's no conversation, you feel a little bit uh, lost in terms of, okay, what was the meaning of the work that I did for this department? 
I think it's reinforcing. You run the risk as an athletic director, of course, to put people in a delicate position when you're doing an evaluation, if you call it an evaluation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it validates your work and you feel like, okay, there's somebody taking care of this program. There are conversations happening back and forth. And how the athletic director is going to do that, it depends on their style. It depends on the culture of their staff. You know, I was reading a, a very interesting book called The Culture Map lately, and it talks about how people in different cultures like to give and receive feedback and how positive feedback is given in a certain culture and negative in a certain culture. So balancing these things out in this kind of international environment is a juggle for an athletic director, but, um, but I would say finding ways to validate that work is, is important for, for someone in my position as a coach, for sure. Great, great. Great answers, guys. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, oh, all the way to the back corner. Okay. No, no, it's great. It's great, Jordan, please. I just had a quick question about um, one of the things we're trying to work on is developing more of our um, involvement with our captains on our teams um, and having athletic directors get more involved in character development and what that looks like to lead um, as young people. And so we piloted a program this year of getting our captains to do a book study with the book, The Servant, which isn't necessarily athletic focused, but it's about leadership. So I wondered if you had any advice or things that you've done with your teams in regards to developing your captains and helping them understand what it means to lead a team. Awesome question. Yeah. Now you're, you're well on your way. That's, those are great ideas, having a, a lunchtime get together or a, a try at least even once in a season just to find out where are they at with the team? What's, how are they feeling about their role as the leader? Uh, what do they see? How do they see this playing out as the season goes on at the end of the season as well, once things are wrapped up? So things like that and just staying in touch with them. One of the things I also like to do when I have a tournament is I have a captain's council, I call it, where I like to meet with all the captains at the end of each day of the tournament just to kind of recap what's happened, if there's any questions. No coaches are involved. It's, it's a chance for me to develop a rapport with them. Um, and then just get some feedback from them about how the day is going, update results, and then asking them to make sure they take that information back to their team and share it with their coaches. So, uh, but in terms of the uh, meeting with them and getting things going, that's a great idea. Have a book read for sure. I, I think captaincy is probably the most uh, underutilized in most places. Do we have a job description? Because being a captain is a job. What does what is that job? What are the requirements? What do we look for? I remember one team that finally did that. They created the job description for the captaincy, and a senior girl who was the best player on the basketball team from her freshman year said, "Finally, I don't have to be a captain. I'm not applying for the job. I don't want to be the. Pre I want to enjoy my senior year, and I will submit to anyone." Who, who has this job, but she just felt the pressure so much that because she's the best player, she's the captain. That's sort of how it's been chosen. It's a job. I don't want that job. I want, I'm willing to follow, but I want to enjoy my senior year and let somebody else have it. So how, how refreshing for that person not to be forced into a job she doesn't want, but to have a job description, application, and then training to train captains and train leaders, not just look for leaders, and to grow them. I, I love what you're doing there. That's great. Go ahead. Yeah. If I can uh, kind of piggyback on that, I'm just curious how, you said it's an application, how are your captains chosen? That's a question for all of you, because I don't have teams. We're suggesting that you actually treat it as a high position mm -hmm. 
with the job description so that, because a lot of times the best player is picked, but all these other players know that person's not a good leader. They know that person off the court, off the field, and they're not a great example, but they're in there because they're a senior and the best athlete. And so once they made a job description, this is what a captain does, this is the application form, I want a one-pager from you on why you meet these requirements and are willing to do this character-wise and skill-wise and responsibility-wise, then you get the people to rise up and say, uh, I'm, I'll apply for that, I meet the qualifications. Uh, otherwise, if there's no job description, how do I know how we're going to choose a captain? Just, it's so informal that we don't know, and it just becomes yeah. the best player. Yeah, we've done it similar, <clears throat> where it's, it's, it's just a, a brief description of what the expectations are. What, it, what are the, some of the myths about being a captain? Does it necessarily mean they are the best, strongest player now? It's about commitment and, and leading the team in a positive way, and being the communicator between the key team and the coach. Um, and then I give that to the kids and let them, for a team I've coached, and let them nominate folks. And then myself and the, the assistant coach or whoever will, we kind of use that as criteria to, to select the captains in the end. So it's kind of a combination of our opinion and their opinion. A lot of times it matches up, it really does. My process is similar. Uh, I coach soccer, and uh, for many years I coached the same team, so I know usually the kids coming out. But sometimes I have new students coming from different schools, it's the reality of our schools. And what I do in the beginning of the season is I talk a little bit about the expectations in front of the group on the first day, and I ask whoever is interested on the captain position to drop me an email with two paragraphs telling me why you, you, you must be my captain. And then usually I get five, six candidates, because it looks good on the kids. When they see it, they're, they're on a new team, they're like, hey, I'm gonna apply for this, and they list the reasons. Sometimes it's the right reason, sometimes it's not. And then once I make my decision, I don't usually make my decision, I give them a buffer of one or two weeks so I can see them in practice, so I can see, okay, let, let me see their, their kind of commitment, if they're gonna be here every day, and if they do have the leadership traits to, to be the captains of this team. I usually take a week or two to respond, so I leave them like on a gray area, and then I make my decision and establish the, the expectations that I have. It's been, it's been working well, but I, it's hard for me to give up on making that decision. I like to hear feedback from other kids, and I try to sense the environment to make sure that I don't put a captain that it's someone who, who will not be a good leader for that group. Because sometimes you have groups within the group, so you have to be careful with managing the personalities and everything. But I usually have them apply, and I usually get six of them. And then I have, two, I, I have the habit of having two captains. Because I think, like you said, it, it might be a, a big pressure on a student to, to be managing everything and the communication in a group of 16, 18 kids. So I usually have two captains. Yeah. And all the, what I like about all these different, there's lots of different ways you can go about it, right? So, but what it does is it lends to the culture of your team because it's something you're taking serious. The kids are gonna have some input on it so they feel, mm -hmm. They're validated and involved. So I think anytime you go about a process, whatever you choose, it's definitely going to add to the validity of your program and your team for sure. It shows you're taking it serious. Yep. That's it's an interesting uh, topic. Except the role of captain, um, do you see any other leadership role within our athletics program? Like we have captains, we have co curricular council or athletic council. What kind of other leadership? 
do you have in your school or would you recommend us to implement? Yeah, we also have a, a in our school, we have a spirit club who kind of also helps with uh, promoting the different events that are happening, not just sports, but also the um, activity program and different things that are happening throughout the school year. They'll have a spirit week. They'll have uh, put up banners. They put up locker decorations for the kids, stuff like that. Uh, and so that's another club. And it's, there's a lot of overlap because <coughs> kids are in other leadership role like Stuco. They're also involved in that. So you, you kind of tend to see the same kids filter through to those leadership roles. But um, that's one way you can do it. So what do you have at uh, American School of Paris? Yeah. In Paris we have an athletic council and then we call it SALT, the Student Ad mm -hmm. Athletic Leadership Team. And we have the guy who idealized everything is Julien who runs mm -hmm. the, the Student Leadership Club there. It's basically something that Matt was mentioning before when, when kids help organize events and they're all over the athletic program. Recently in a track and field event, they were all responsible for all the social media around the event. So they, they were coordinating the social media account to report the results of the track and field uh, tournament. It was really, really well done by the kids. They register every single event with pictures, with the positions and who was winning what. And the parents absolutely love to, because they spent their day tracking the events and looking at live transmissions in the social media account. It was really interesting. And for kids, I mean, it's easy for them to to do with that kind of language and, and using the, the social media account. So we have a student athlete leadership team and, and these kids are in deeply involved in the, in the program. Normally it's not the captains because the captains are usually busy with their teams, and, but, uh, but these are two, the two main ones that we have. Can I add something? Mm -hmm. In this group, uh, we try to implement um, first aid kit. So we come on the competition and be the first aid helping the I don't know, fireman or mm -hmm. the guy who are better. Um, we'd like to have co-coach. If you're in upper school, you can help the coach mm. uh, coaching the middle school or the lower school kids. Mm. And we try to to have referees also. To have like uh, middle schoolers who can ref the lower school soccer, for example, <coughs> or upper school can ref the middle school. We try to do that in the school. That's that's, That's another awesome. way to get them engaged in the program on yeah. different levels. How do you have enough kids? I think like I have 800 kids in our school and I can't get enough kids to be on an athlete council because they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Um, all of us are sitting here, PE teachers, ADs, coaches, <coughs> and most likely um, in our current positions because of a positive experience we had as a, as a child um, in a sporting scene. Um, the current Vogue program uh, is encouraging the power of play um, and creativity, developing creativity. Yet, when you observe ES Recess, you still see a strong desire amongst the students for competition. I'm always questioning at which age we should be facilitating competitive or should it be play-based programs. And we haven't changed our middle school or our, our high school competitions for many years. And I wonder what the current research tells us about what's best for the kids. And are we still doing what's best for the kids, ultimately? Yeah, I, I, I love, nothing makes me feel, or warms my heart more when I see kids organize themselves. When they get themselves at lunch day recess, and I love to see that because they just get themselves sorted and off they go. Um, to support that, what I try to do, um, I guess to make it a little more formal, I've done things in, at lunchtime, I, like a table tennis tournament, for example. 
I've organized that in the past. We're, we're going to try to do badminton this year as well. So some kind of different things to kind of support that, give them that little more opportunity. In terms of research, I'm really not sure at the moment. I haven't looked into it too much uh, in terms of you know, the guided play uh, versus uh, making it more competitive. Um, I think it's, for us, it's just that we have our competitive program. The kids have that opportunity. So it's just giving them a little more, maybe just at lunchtime. Uh, if I can do that, I'll, I'll definitely try to do that to support those kids who want a little more. Who cares about the research? We want to win. You know? <laughs> That's the attitude in the U.S. It's just absurd. I mean, the research is really clear. It's really clear. The longer you can keep them in free play, self-directed, self-determined, the more healthy our child becomes. Because that's free play is where you learn that the world's a safe place. It's where you learn how to navigate uh, relationships. Uh, and what we've done is we've robbed the free play and inserted organized competition. So you can't go to the playground anymore you, because your friends aren't there because they're in organized competition where adults insert their imagination. Uh, if, if we could wave a wand, if I couldn't stop anything, it would be all the organized competition until eight, nine, ten years of age to start that. But, but I can't. The horse <coughs> is out of the barn. So what we're trying to do at least is say, do the best you can to make sure you bring the playground into the practice. Because when you think about attitude and effort in the playground, it's through the roof. Do you get the same attitude and effort, great attitude, great effort, in your practice? Uh, when you rob them from that self-determination, it's hard. So I said, at least figure out how to bring the playground into your practice. Because uh, there's a reason why 75% of kids quit organized sport by the time they're 12 years old. It's, and they will, there's lots of reasons they'll just say it's no fun anymore. Mm -hmm. the, nobody says the, the playground's no fun anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's, the playground's appropriately challenging. Yeah. And we, we negotiate that. So I said, if we can. Uh, for a youth coach, the motto ought to be, never be a kid's last coach. Never be the kid's last coach. When you're done, they should want to, oh, I can't wait for this to start again. Can't we go another couple of weeks? Whatever it is, never be a kid's last coach. Yeah. Oh, just to kind of speak to that, I, one fun term, uh, our varsity, I'm the varsity girls assistant basketball coach. And our varsity girls coach, she, came, she had a great term she used a couple weeks ago, and she, she I think we were just coming off of uh, ski break, and we had several kids who were involved in the play production, and it was really a lot going on for the kids. And it was the beginning of practice, and the kids were playing knockout and just having a good time. And we got that vibe where we just said to each other, let's take a step back from the X's and O's and the strategic stuff, because it was the first day back, that first Tuesday after the break. Let's just make this a fun practice. And she said, that's great. I'm going to go camp coach mode right now because she did summer camps and they would do stuff where they just made it fun for kids. So we kind of use that as our phrase going forward. And then we use it in the tournament as well. Like we just said, let's go camp coach mode. Let them do their own, let them do the warm up themselves and just let them go. And the kids ran with it. It was great. I had a, a personal experience that speaks a little bit to your, to your question. And it wasn't in the international school. It wasn't the club. In, in France, I have a son who is now 10 years old, and he's been playing uh, soccer for three years in the French club system. And the French club system is very organized, and they have their philosophy, their ideas, and it's very interesting up to a certain point. And by the age of seven, eight, and nine, when a visiting team comes on the weekend, they don't do matches. They do a circuit training with four stations, 
and the invited team comes in and they divide the kids into four small groups and they play together and compete with each other in the drills. So one drill is a mini game, three versus three. One drill is a dribbling drill. One drill is a passing drill. One drill is a running drill. And they do that for about an hour with the visiting team. And then they do four or five small games of four versus four. It's very relaxed. There's no final score. You're not there to win, to compete, or to play against another team. So this is age seven, eight, and nine. So age 10, they start seven versus seven. So my kid went through two years of the first one with a smile on his face, coming home happy. He's not very advanced in soccer, but he was always happy. This year, when you play seven versus seven, you have the concept of the A team and the B team, mm -hmm. and you have different levels of competition. You have a score at the end. So that's a different feeling that he comes from the games. To the point of seeing him playing an eight, play on the A team, score a goal on a match, but the game was 2-2, and he's almost crying at the end of the game. And this was a great day. I watched the game, I watched the whole game. He played really well, made good plays, made good decisions, but the score was just, we did, I don't value the score. Maybe the coach, if the coach does it the right way, he's not talking about the score, but this is a match against the other team and there's a score at the end. So to speak to your question, it could kill the motivation of certain kids because then little by little it tells them, okay, this is about winning. This is not about coming out and play and learning skills because the emphasis will always be in the result at the end. So I had to have a long conversation with him, not after the game, because I have this policy of not talking to him after the game. Even if it brings something up, I'm like, hey, I want to go to McDonald's or whatever. Like, <laughs> I try to, I dodge everything, and I only talk after the next day or two days. But uh, I had to convince him that it was a good experience. I said, you did these things so well, you scored a goal. You scored a goal with the left foot. I was like, this is amazing, you scored a goal with the left foot. And you're, you're right-footed. But he wasn't convinced that it was a, a good experience for him. And he's 10 years old. I can't kill that you know, in a, with competition. And I think in, our, in the reality of our schools, it's everybody sees, of course, the, most people see the middle school years as inclusion years where people have to, kids have to be coming in and playing and experiencing and playing for fun and try to be removed from this competition aspect. But there are cultural aspects of our communities that influence too. Like Mark said, if you have a heavy American cultured community, competition will be big. You will want teams to be going to tournaments. And I mean, it really depends on the reality of your school, of your community, and how you're gonna navigate that. But yeah, please defend, play for as long as you can. Because which academy is that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry? In France, which In France, he plays for a club on the French Federation. It's a, the, the club structures in sports, super well organized in France. And traditionally, the sports are not in the schools. It's mostly yeah. in club sports. Yeah, yeah. Similar to my country. I was just wondering, is it a famous academy or a No, it's French? just a normal city club. Every okay. city will have their pool and will have their club. Mm -hmm. And the federation supports the okay. clubs with the training of the coaches. It's very well organized. Okay. And there's a philosophy behind. Okay. And they train the educators to, these coaches to work with the kids. Mm -hmm. So the work is really well done. It's two practices a week. The, the amount of time is, is reasonable, but it's a club. Yeah. It's not necessarily, f the primary focus is not education, let's put it like that. Even though they have, they talk the right way and it's not a heavy, competitive, uh, aggressive environment, but, but it's still, the, at the end of the day, they want to compete, they want to beat the other teams, they mm -hmm. want to climb divisions, mm -hmm. 
So it's a it's a different kind of experience. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, I also can add to um, what what Stephen said. Just as a as a primary elementary PE teacher, uh, being now at the school for enough years, where students I had in elementary are entering middle school, high school, and, and going to these tournaments, and uh, recently also started helping with middle school again as well. And you notice there's a big difference that comes where, like you said, it's suddenly just about the score. Like you could have played the best game of your life. You could have improved so much from during the season over weeks and weeks of practice and show lots of commitment. And it's all for naught because, you know, you go to Belgrade and you're facing a team of giant eighth graders and, you know, you'll never get to that level. So I think what was what was interesting from from uh, our side was uh, my colleague and I, we started thinking, OK, what can we do at least starting with fifth graders to at least get them to be maybe ready, more ready for this idea of like you're going to play like a sport with referees and it'll be you know, just trying to build that bridge a little bit. So we started doing it under the premise of if kids in your neighborhood needed one more kid to join, would you join? So we did, we did badminton, we did volleyball, we did ones where, okay, usually they wouldn't be able to organize it themselves. Um, we did some like slow pitch softball. So hopefully now that we're going to start seeing some of the fruits of that labor, but it was, it was interesting. Like, so like I did the softball part and it was, if kids really didn't feel comfortable holding this, like, piece of metal in their hand and trying to hit a ball, which is hard to do if you've never done it before, you could just take a tennis racket and I and I toss you the tennis ball. So then they feel, oh, I hit the ball really far. Then kids learn, okay, that's why you have to have an outfield and an infield and all these things. So I think it's it's really interesting to think about because I know I struggle with it where I saw kids who were in fourth and fifth grade who are really, you know, wide eyed and just loving like this idea of play and being active. And then suddenly they go and they they travel on a plane. They, and they meet with all these teams and then it's just it gets real serious real fast and it matters so much that most of them are brought to tears whether they win or lose and for various reasons and it is all about really unfortunately like the score at the end i mean that's what they remember they'll if they go to an assembly talk about it they remember the exact score and not many maybe go over the other details so i just feel like it's also a really important um thing to think about and and i i know for me i, I think about it a lot because i feel like the pe class has an opportunity to maybe help build those bridges while not, you know, taking away the time that the, all the kids deserve to be, you know, devoting towards the general, like, you know, being active and getting passionate about, about staying active, you know, hopefully for the rest of their lives. Um, and, you know, and however that may look, but yeah. Great. Following up on that, my question would be, how do you go on about like introducing these team sports to younger grades? Uh, especially like, I don't know, volleyball, basketball, because we often face frustration from the side of parents because they want to start you know their kids in the first grade you know being proper trained as basketball players then coaches uh, on the side of the frustration on the side of the coaches because they are like proper basketball coaches but they work with the first graders who have like completely different you know like expectations they just want to have fun frustration on the side of the kids because they don't really want to do basketball they're just there you know to burn off some energy so like at what ages do you introduce these sports and how they're organized at the elementary level in your schools? Yeah, in our school, I'll, I'll use basketball as an example because we do have uh, one of our middle school uh, PE teachers. She's a former Hungarian professional player. She played D1 in the States and she's been just coached all different levels for our school. So she starts it out in third grade from that level. Um, so, so from that age, they can start joining the after school program. Uh, and develop their skills and, and she actually tied, has connections with the Hungarian local federation so this kids can join the tournament so for us that's when we start that particular sport 
Uh, our PE staff tries to work into the units, uh, the sports we do in our upper school program. Um, they touch on them and try to introduce them and get the, the basic skills going. But as far as a full-fledged program, we don't have any type of feeder program that goes out other than probably the basketball. I'm still surprised sometimes when schools don't have the sports that they have teams in. Like they don't, you know, a, a school that has softball then doesn't teach softball in PE. That surprises me because I think it's like totally linked and the teams should, everyone should work together. Do you, do you teach all the sports in your PE classes that you, that you have in teams? In our, in our school, we try to have a balanced mix of, because PE is a curricular subject and it's for everyone. It's not choice-based, and you have, you have the curriculum to deliver for, for all the kids. You don't want to make it all about the sports, because you know, PE teachers know that this is not necessarily very inclusive. Not all kids like sports, not all kids like all sports. So we have a lot of play-based activities, adventure activities in our middle school and high school curriculum. But we do, like Matt said, we touch on the sports. And, and the kids have, since the middle school, they have a menu where they choose the activities, but we, we make them cycle through most of the activities. But we do teach in PE most, I would say, all of the sports that we do, with the exception of actual rugby with, with contact. But um, I think we touch on, on most of the sports that we have at the school. And in the elementary level, to go back to your question, in, in our school, we start soccer very early because football is a big, it's a huge culture here in Europe. And, and and in France, it's no different, but um, with a very minimal competitive aspect. Up, up to fifth grade, the kids start having some games against other schools, local schools, only by fourth and fifth grade. And these are festivals where the kids come and they play two, three games. There's no placement in a tournament. There's no trophy. There's no medal. There's no first, second, and third. It's just festivals where they have games and, and it's relaxed. Everybody's subbed. Everybody's playing. There's no major focus on competition. So that starts in fourth and fifth grade. By the time they get to middle school, then they have some more, more local competitions. And then, of course, high school or in the ISST, then they have more, more structure uh, competition for them. Let me share a suggestion that we came across with a coach, who a PE teacher, who, who in the US, it's required for all the uh, students to take PE. So your top athletes are in the PE <coughs> classes. Normally that's really intimidating for the kids who aren't. And if you think back to your experience, if you're playing dodgeball, what happens in that situation? Well, this PE teacher pulls those kids in and says this, the vast majority of your grade will be on how you help these other kids get better. And so this is, we already know you're the best athletes in the school. You don't need, when we have these, the physical education and the health stuff because you're getting it, you're competing all the time. So your grade is going to be based on how you help these other people get better. And so now they become the assistant teachers in there. And they all of a sudden now stop thinking about looking good. This is, when I'm playing dodgeball, give me the ball and we're gonna win. As of now, when I'm playing dodgeball, I'm protecting this kid. When I catch it, I give them the ball to throw. And I try to help him or her get better. What a change, what could, because those other kids are so intimidated anyway by the athletes in the, that they, they don't even want to step forward and embarrass themselves. Now this, this other athlete is helping them to get better, making a new friend. 
And if you want somebody to come watch you play, make a new friend, not, not intimidate them. But that was a brilliant solution, at least in the US system, when you're requiring even the top athletes to take PE with the kids that feel so intimidated by it. That's great. Serious. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you to just elaborate on multiple sport athletes. So I'm a father, I have two boys, I'm AD. Um, so there's a contradicting opinion, you know, uh, kids need to play several sports for as long as possible and then focus, choose one or two. And um, I also have pushback in my school from some families. Focus on one or two sports in the school and just have the kids do these sports and so they can be better and as best as they can in these sports. Just please elaborate, you know, what's your opinion on, on this? Can they enhance or, you know, help if an athlete does several sports at the same time, does it help him actually become a better athlete? Um, yeah, just want to hear your opinion. That's a, uh, that's a very intriguing question and there are multiple perspectives because as a coach sometimes I experience, for example, in the ISST playing against schools who have kids who play clubs the whole year and then when they come to the ISST they can perform at a club level not because they are training at the school for three months <clears throat> and then most I have my kids fluctuate. There are years that I have six, seven club kids in my soccer team. There are years that I have none. This year was one year, last year, that we had no, no club players. And we struggled to compete in the ISST against the schools from Germany and from Switzerland because the kids are club players. So from a coaching perspective, many times when I talk to my kids, I tell them it's interesting if, if this is a passion for you, that you play the whole year, that you develop the skills, if you want to be more competitive. But as a PE teacher and as a coach, I, I put great value on multi-sport participation for several different reasons. First one, injury prevention, to avoid repetitive movements of the same muscle groups and being doing the same activity for the whole year. Second one, uh, just motor repertoire development, being exposed to different techniques, developing your coordination and your motor skills. And the last one, each sport offers different kinds of exposures to leadership, team dynamics, individual sport versus um, team sport. So if you play, for example, tennis in a season, it's an individual sport. That's one kind of pressure that you do as an athlete. And when you develop that skill, you're learning motor skills and you're in a different environment. And then you go to a team sport where it's a completely different dynamic. You're not as exposed and you're learning different roles within the organization of a team. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate for multi-sports for these three main reasons. I think it's very enriching for kids, especially when we talk about our population, <coughs> in which a tiny percentage of our population really will make it to the highest level of either college or professional. Mm -hmm. So the majority of our kids, will their sports life is going to happen in those years. And they will get to college, and they will probably be joining intramurals or or playing for fun somewhere, or join some friends mm -hmm. to play sports somewhere. So in order to reach this majority, I think this is, a, this is the right approach, this is the best approach. Yeah, it gives them a good foundation that they can take forward. And I, I like the idea of the social impact as well, because if you're <coughs> playing a different sport, chances are there's going to be other kids who might not play the sport you did in the fall, but they will do the sport you're going to do in the winter. Uh, so that's a new, another dynamic, plus another coach that they're going to hear, get instruction from, and develop a relationship one. With. So I think I like that aspect of it because it, it mixes it up a little more for kids and gives them different exposures um, in the social and the coaching realm. 
excuse me, was it, it's interesting you say every point that you both just said. Um, Wayne Gretzky, uh, probably the greatest hockey player of all time, was doing a lot of public announcements in Canada because trying to get away that parents were so, you know, have a shooting coach, a skating coach, and everything that you just said. Like, Wayne Gretzky was a huge uh, baseball player, loved to play baseball, played box lacrosse, mm -hmm. and everything that you just said in, a, in, a, in a, um, a speech that he was giving is that let your kids explore other things mm -hmm. to meet new kids. And he said a lot of the, cross, uh, the crossover mm -hmm. will help you. Right. Exactly, you said that the, the consistent movement leads to a lot of ACL injuries. Mm -hmm. Where he was saying, you know, with box across, he had it helped him with eye hand coordination that he could translate to, uh, to hockey, and the same with hitting a baseball. And he also said that he met a whole bunch of uh, people that he would never have met that he carried on. And everything that you said, he literally had said in this thing to promote um, kids to do more things as opposed to focusing just on hockey. So, but to prove that point, actually, if you ask those those professional coaches and they say about their best players, actually, they say uh, they prefer some uh, players and those who made it to the very top. It's always those players that play different sports. For example, since I'm in basketball and I coach professionally in basketball, I always like the, uh, the players who started very early age as a soccer players because of their agility and the speed. And some of them actually, from, for example, even squash, lateral movement, amazing for basketball. Yeah, Roger Federer could have been a professional soccer player until he turns yeah. tennis. Mm -hmm. Probably not Yeah, but yeah. then another thing, uh, there is a, for every sport there is early specialization. For example, for basketball is a, right now they say it's nine year old. Mm -hmm. no, it's very early, like nine year old, and then you specialize for basketball. And uh, I still believe it maybe it's twelve. But what the other coaches they do uh, is uh, during. Uh, until they become professional, even when they are professional, they will bring the other coaches, and uh, let's say they would do instead of one basketball practice, they will do maybe aerobics, building the aerobic teachers. And I think that uh, research was done in Slovakia somewhere, and uh, they say hugely the uh, place they loved it, you know. We know that every victory uh, leans on loads of failure. Like uh, for each match we win, we lost so many times. Uh, and we come to these kind of conferences and talk and we, we only hear about all the victories that speakers have. So I would like to hear, since we have three layers here, that we have coach, AD, and trainer for coaches and AD, a failure you have, not a struggle, not a challenge, a failure, a dead holly. Something that's like, okay, I need to wrap this out, didn't work. You glad you agreed to be up there? No? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really it's only a failure if I don't learn from it. It's feedback. Otherwise, yeah. uh, my my greatest one that I felt like as a father was really putting my own daughter in a fixed mindset. We shared the other day about that, but she was a music piano player and early on, and of course what I said is, oh, I, I love to hear you play. I wish I'd have said, I love to see you work at new things. I love to hear the mistakes, because that means you're trying something new. Because when I say I love to hear you, it's because you play well. And, and so now I'm restricted to just playing the same things and not taking the risks the, that necessary. And so 
from for me looking back, I was, oh, I wish, I wish I would have said these things instead. That would encourage practice. That would encourage risk taking. That would encourage uh, mistakes, not failures, but mistakes, because then it's feedback. Uh, it's really only a failure if I didn't learn from it. But to me, that was the biggest one. As I look back, as a father, I mean, I, I got mine as a coach too. But <laughs> yeah. for me, as I, I off the top of my head, I remember when I was a young coach. I started really early, after, right after college, at 25 years old. I was already coaching middle school boys in, a, in the American School of Rio. And I had that young energy, that young competitive energy of a former school athlete. And then I get to see these tournaments. I mean, I lived in Brazil. There's not a lot of infrastructure like the international school. So when I arrived in the international school, I saw this world of competition. I traveled to Sao Paulo, to another city, to play with 14-year-old kids. And I was super excited with the competition aspect of it as a young coach. And I was very driven to teach the kids systems, and I was really focused on the game, not on the kids. And I had this group in the second year in, with which I was struggling with the behavior of the kids. The kids were too competitive. The kids were complaining at the referee. The kids were, and not that I was compla complaining at the referee, but now when I look back, I see that the kids were a reflex of what I was being with them because I was trying to get them to compete. To, to be the best or whatever, whatever it was at the time. And they really flunked in this tournament, mostly not because of the score of the games, but because of the behavior. There were red cards constantly in our, in our soccer games. And I was very frustrated at the time. It was when I was doing another training not related to sports in the school. And I was learning about backward design and big idea, how do we start with the big idea. And I had an insight, I was like, what is the big idea that I'm trying to teach these kids? And it hit me that I, I was only teaching them how to compete and how to win as a coach at that point. And it felt like a failure for me. I said, oh, I'm failing at this. This is not what I'm supposed to do here. I will always fail even if I win the tournaments, if I'm not mm -hmm. teaching the child and, and the different values of sports and the, all the beautiful things that you, that you can learn through sports. So it was two difficult years where I couldn't figure out how to manage the behavior of those kids, how to manage the energy of that group. And there was a lot of losses and problems and situations that, that were tricky for me to do as a coach. But I feel like two years later I clicked and I said, okay, I set the expectations. I set you know, what they're gonna feel about. Uh, going back to one of the questions about competition when he made a comment uh, in the back about the, the, the softball game. And I had an insight also how as a coach, you have the voice to frame the experience for the kids. I had a year, a full year in Paris where the JV basketball team that I coached lost every single game. But the kids absolutely loved to play basketball because I was talking to them, this is a work in progress for us. We're gonna play against these teams. These guys are older than you. I had a bunch of ninth graders. They were small. They were not tall kids. They were not skilled. I said, you guys are building, <coughs> we're building something together. And I was more experienced. I could frame the right way and I could hold on to those kids until the end of the season, even though we lost, I don't know, maybe nine, 10 games. We didn't win a single game. And the last one was a home game. All the parents were there and we were losing by two. And the final possession, we don't make a layup and we don't win a game. It was a very symbolic season for me. We didn't win a single game. But then in, in, when they went to 10th grade the next year, I was also uh, lucky to have the addition of two or three new kids. We had a really successful season with the same group, winning more, more games than losing games. But 
I had the control of the environment and the control of the experience. But I wouldn't get to where I am now if I didn't fail with that group when I was 25, 26 year old young coach, only focusing on results, results, that's how we compete, that's how we play. And then the kids would reflect my, my energy in the, in the field. Now you've had a lot, a lot of time to think now. No, and I think that's why it's important to have the time to reflect at the end of a season or at the end of the year. Uh, and one thing we were talking about coaches' evaluations and feedback, and that's one area I feel like I'm always dropping the ball because the the pace of the school year goes so fast, and there's so much to do. Like right now, I I should make be making the time at some point to talk to our winter coaches, and I I'm probably gonna forget, right? I'm probably gonna or it's gonna get lost in the shuffle, and then mm -hmm. you just got to keep moving forward uh, to prepare for the next season. That's something I know I need to improve on. Uh, looking back and, and then also evaluating your systems to make sure things are working efficiently with sign-ups and preparing mm -hmm. for trips and having your checklists in order so um, yeah, there's always room for improvement for sure. Yeah. Another small question. Um, in, in Argentina we have a private and, and public system competing in, in the same leagues. Uh, we have city leagues, then regional leagues and then national leagues and then the schools just move forward. But there's two categories. One is federative, and it's for players that actually play in clubs, and they represent their schools. And there's another one that is non-federative, and you can form the team only with players that do not play in clubs, and they're not registered in the federation of the sport you're playing. Now, would you consider, since the international schools sometimes, even because of the language, like I have a kiddo, I don't know, he's from Korea, and he comes to Vilnius, and he definitely doesn't speak Lithuania, right? So the only place where he can actually unfold his activity, his sports, is at school because he has the language, right? So would you consider to make, for example, CISA only open for players that they are not in clubs? Uh, so you can keep the, co the competitive uh, aspect, you can give the integration aspect, and you can give more opportunities, actually, because you just don't call the place. I, I understand because I was a federative player in my school. I understand the honor of representing my school in a high level. But I also understood when I was not called <laughs> because the other kid didn't have the club. He didn't have any other opportunity there. So would you consider sister to move forward that direction? Hmm. I would say probably not. Uh, in the view of how things have gone over the years. We know there's club players that participate. For example, swimming is one example. Um, I, you, know, you can tell who the club guys are because they're pretty pretty strong swimmers. And uh, But at the same time, do you want to deny that kid a chance to represent the school? Mm -hmm. What if they're a really, really good kid too, as well as being a really high-level athlete? So uh, it's we don't really have any... Uh, rules about that in CISA, as far as I understand, there there is expectations for attending practices. We have that internally um, in the handbook. It says they have to be full member school, yeah. you know, full members of the school. Mm -hmm. But to limit or put restrictions on club players, I don't. You won't have the team. I don't think so. I think I don't think we're that big. I grew up in Brazil and and I had a similar experience. We have the same thing there, with the federados and non federados, okay. and um, I think. In the international scene, the difference that I see is the emphasis on the result is different. 
In, in the federated, non-federated scenario, you have a very well-structured competition between schools that is every weekend, at least in Brazil it was like that. And at some point, the clubs, schools for example, schools were giving scholarships to athletes from clubs to, to go to a school similar to what you see in the US with college. So a school, a private school would go to a club and offer scholarships to those kids and they go to that school and they represent that school on the federated tournament and they bring the image of that school as a sports school. But they were not developing those athletes. They were just giving scholarship to athletes that were already in clubs. And in that scene, competition really matters. And the federated competition had a bigger value because these athletes were playing at a high level. What I see in CISA, in the ISST, in this region is we have, first of all, we have programs that we try as best as we can for them to be inclusive, to give the kids a chance to play. And the result, it's not as important for the school. It's more of the idea of the experience. So at the end of the day, if we want to really be inclusive, you want everyone to be participating in it. Even if it means the example that I gave before. This year I had a, a soccer team that had no club players. We finished in last place. But two years ago we had six, seven club players. I finished first place. So the years will fluctuate like that and, and kids will come in and out. And the level of the competition, sometimes you see a discrepancy but I don't think it's that present. I don't know your experience in CISA, but in the ISST, it's quite, it's not that you see a school that has dominant athletes and that school has dominated the conference. Everything fluctuates. It depends on the sport, it depends on the year. So I think there's not enough unbalance for the athletic directors to be worried about, okay, let's not have the, the club athletes uh, perform. We have uh, two guys at the back that are like, I, I really can't wait to hear what's gonna come out of, of these guys. Uh, because it's going to be the last one, because we're getting close to time, so. All right, well then, uh, I think I got a good question to finish, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> what are um, the current issues that you're like, this is such a pain, this is hard to deal with, that you're dealing with right now? I'm kind of new to this, so I want to know what pitfalls I'm going to hit. <laughs> <laughs> good question. Yeah, well, like. What, uh, I guess for us, it's planning for the future. We're, we're going through a process. We're, we're going to have a new league affiliation, affiliation next year. Uh, it's an old, new one. And just, we've just found out that we're actually going to be including homestays back into the program. The directors have decided they want to have homestays again, which is, was a little bit of a shock. So that's going to take some work because we're going to have to reintroduce that concept to our community. Luckily, we do have systems in place, and we have a person in place who can help me with it. Um, but it's going to be a big challenge to bring that back. I'm not sure how it's going to work. It's a it's a big mystery. It could, it could go great or it could fall apart. <laughs> not fall apart, but it's going to be a challenge. I don't. We'll see. For me, in our program in Paris, I would say we struggle to have a lot of local competition. Our school is the biggest international school, the only school that has a robust sports program. There are many other international schools around Paris, but they're usually smaller schools with not a lot of budget for sports. We only have the British School of Paris, which has a similar program to ours, but even them, like they don't, don't have as many kids engaged, they don't have as many competitive teams as we do. So every competition weekend that we do, we have to travel. We have to go to The Hague, we have to go to Frankfurt, we have to, so the cost is the challenge, the logistics is a challenge. And also to be hosting every weekend teams from, from abroad, 
how that process works, so it's super busy. The biggest challenge for us is to, to have local, more local competition. We struggle with most of our teams. And now one thing that we started trying to do to fix that is try to establish relationships with some clubs to try to see if we can fit in the schedule, but the clubs are busy, they play every weekend. One solution we found in soccer was to an, a local club nearby, we go at their practice time at 8 o'clock at night to do two scrimmage games during the soccer season, so that helped. We had two extra games. But we feel we will arrive at the ISST with 9 to 12 matches in three months. We play against teams that are playing 25 times, 25, 26 matches before the tournament. So that's a big disadvantage. So we're, we're trying to fix that. Mark, how about you close us off with your struggle at the moment? We hear a lot about parents. I don't know if that's an issue for you, but parents are a part of the process. They're not, are they assets or liabilities? How do we, we manage liabilities, we maximize assets. And so we want to say, are we managing our parents or do we, can we treat them as assets? Because most of them want to do what's right. They just don't know how to navigate this whole thing. And as a coach, you've taken a lot of kids through this journey and you can help the parents. I mean, you do have to coach two generations now. It's, it's essential to do that if you're going to survive, let alone thrive. And uh, parents, they, they need help in this journey too. Uh, because I mean, the two greatest, uh, in, the two greatest people typically in a, in a kid's life, if they're in sports, is the coach and their parents or guardians. And they're the most important people and, and we don't need to have us going like this because the kid's caught in the middle of that then. And then how do we align the sales? That's what we're trying to help in this whole ecosystem of sport. It's, it's a big deal around the world, at least in clubs. That's been my experience because the higher you go up in sport, the more it's the same all over the world. The competition is its own culture. And every, every person's a three-dimensional being. And so we want to help to coach them in all three dimensions and to align the sales of parents and coaches so that the, the athlete has the greatest experience they can. That, that's been the dilemma outside of training coaches that we hear is how do we deal with parents? Well, I thought this could go one of two ways. One, there'd be nobody here, no one wanted to ask questions, or it would be full and you'd want to talk for two hours. Yeah. So thankfully it went that way, um, but we should stop for the coffee break and then there's another session with Mark. So um, thanks to all of you for coming and talking and making notes all over. And of course, thanks you three guys um, for sitting in the hot seat a little bit and having some great answers. So. Until next week, this has been another episode of the Globe Trotten ADs. We should have done a rotation. I still have one more question. It's a room full of extra shots. We should have a timer every 10 minutes to rotate the hot seat.